So we'll begin with the meditation. Just let your body be relaxed. Find a posture where you really can feel awake and attentive, but also relaxed. You may have to adjust your posture in the middle of the practice. That's okay. You don't have to be stiff. It's more about not feeling pain or tension in your body because that will distract you from your practice. If you get drowsy, you can always open your eyes or rub your, rub your cheeks. You know, there are things to do if you feel drowsy. But usually if you're, you, you will become really comfortable if you sit upright or even if you're on your back, lying on your back, you can just stretch out your spine so you feel like you're not cuddled up to take a nap, but that you're sitting upright. And just let your hands be open in your lap, either palms up or palms down. But keep your, keep your palms open. Don't, if you're clenching your hands, let go of that because that creates a lot of tension. The words to remember sometimes during meditation is just to let go. That tension, tightness will build up in your body. So with each exhale, you can just remember, let go, just relax, just let go. You can take a few deep breaths in and out to help center yourself so your mind and your body are all together in one place. And that place is this present moment. Those deep breaths in and out can help signal to your body and your mind it's time to come together. We're shifting into a different activity. So just be with your breath Choose a spot where you observe the breath, either around your nostrils, or you can also just be aware of your abdomen, where your tummy will expand as you inhale and contract as you exhale. 
Those are the two best spots just to watch your breath. Scan through your body, be aware of where you hold in tightness, where you may have pain. Imagine breathing in into those spots. And on the exhale, just imagine you're releasing all of that tension. Let's do a short metta practice. So just begin by sending good thoughts to yourself, feelings of friendliness, of kindness and compassion to yourself. May I be well. May I be well in my physical body and in my mind. May I feel safe in the world. May I be contented and know happiness and joy. And may I live in peace, both internally and externally.
Think about the phrases you send to yourself. You can use your own. But sometimes during the day we may feel that we're bombarding ourselves with judgment, criticism, directives, work instructions, worries. So taking time to do metta practice is a way to let, to start loosening the grip of all of the difficulties we put in our own way. May I be well. May I be content. May I know joy and happiness. And may I be at peace. Now think of your loved ones. You may want to focus on one person among your family or dear friends or noble friends. There may be one person that you're really thinking of and want to send metta to them only. Or you can think of your loved ones in general. May those dear to me be well mentally and physically. May they feel safe in this world. May they be contented. May they know joy and happiness. And may they be at peace.
And now let's move that energy out and just imagine you're radiating with this energy of metta, of loving friendliness. Think of all beings everywhere, human beings, non-human beings, beings invisible to us and beings we can see. We can send metta to those who have died recently. To all beings being born, all beings who have died, May all beings everywhere, human and non-human, be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. May they be free from fear and worry and anxiety, free from hunger and thirst, May all beings be able to care for themselves and have shelter, or may they be cared for lovingly by others. And may all beings everywhere throughout the universe, way beyond our imaginations, may all beings be at peace. Now just be with each breath. Notice if the breath is long or short or deep or shallow. Just observe your breath.
be aware of everything coming into your sense doors, but no need to get caught up in stories, no need to feed those thoughts with your attention. Just be aware and then come back to the breath. Just keep letting go.
now as we end our practice, through the effort and energy that we've put into our practice, may every thought, every word, and everything we do today be done not only for our own benefit, but for the benefit of all living beings everywhere. Thank you. So let's chant. If you're new, we start on page four of the book. Namo tasse bhagavato arehato samma sambuddhase Namo tasse bhagavato arehato samma sambuddhase Namo tasse bhagavato arehato samma sambuddhase Buddhang saranang gacchami Dhammang saranang gacchami Sangang saranang gacchami Dutiyampi buddhang saranang gacchami Dutiyampi dhammang saranang gacchami Dutiyampi sangang saranang gacchami Tatiyampi budang saranang gacchami Tatiyampi dhammang saranang gacchami Tatiyampi sangang saranang gacchami Anicca vata sankara Upadevaya dhammino Upajitva nirujanti Te sangupa samosuko Sabe satta avera huntu Sabe satta ayapaja huntu Sabe satta anika huntu Sape satta 
Sukiyatanam Pariharantu Manaho Pupangemadama Mano Seta Mano Maya Manasache Padutena Pasatiwa Karotiwa Tato Nanduka Manweti Chakang Wewahato Padang Mano Pupangemadama Mano Seta Mano Maya Manasache Pasanena Pasatiwa Karotiwa Tato Nang Sukha Manweti Chayawa Anapaini Mind is a forerunner of all states. Mind is chief, mind made are they. If with a corrupted mind one should either speak or act, suffering follows caused by that, as does the wheel follow the ox's hoof. Mind is a forerunner of all states. Mind is chief, mind made are they. If with a clear and confident mind one should either speak or act, happiness follows caused by that as one shadow that never leaves. We believe in generosity towards others. We believe the skillful, noble path is by generosity. We believe generosity has many levels. Think generously, speak generously, act generously. We believe generosity is the heart of our spiritual practice, and this practice allows us to become more open, accepting, and forgiving. We believe extending generosity to ourselves and others is a direct way of healing division, bringing joy, and nurturing the spiritual community for years to come. May I become at all times, both now and forever, a protector for those without protection, a guide for those who have lost their way, a ship for those with an ocean to cross, a sanctuary for those in danger, a lamp for those without light, a place of refuge for those who lack shelter, and a servant to all in need. By means of this meritorious deed, may I never join with the unwise, only the wise, until the time I attain Nibbana. So thanks, nice to be here. I I hope I can see what I want to read. Um, This weekend I had a, a, I lead a, 
retreat uh, right now about once a year called Moving into Silence. And it's this, <laughs> my co-leader is a, a really excellent yoga teacher. And uh, she mentioned at the end of the retreat, and all of us noticed it, this was the noisiest retreat we've had. And that, I mean, we were all talking more than we should. And usually, <laughs> usually we're, it's, you know, we, we talk a little bit on Friday when, when you go to leave the room, you're quiet and we're silent all day Saturday and all day Sunday until about uh, two o'clock. And this time people were just, and Donna and I were doing it too. People were just, uh, one group of people decided that one little room in the dining area, in the dining room, was going to be the talking room. <laughs> and it was like, wait a minute, we didn't say you could have a talking room. <laughs> they just did it. And so it attracted a lot of other people who were at the retreat center, and it became so noisy. And I had gone in there innocently, uh, I'd like to think, but I was talking too. And the it, the noise was overwhelming. So, you know, there were about seven tables, and there were new groups coming in that had just gotten there, and other groups that were supposed to be quiet. And um, and before the meal was finished, I thought, how do we ever eat with people talking all around us? It was like being in a like a restaurant, and restaurants are so noisy. You can't. You definitely people are all talking, and there's music in the background. So this it's, it's, it was really, I mean, for us as the facilitators of the group, that's a big fail to have people. <laughs> and, and some people, one person had the excuse, well, you know, I was at home for two years and lived by myself during COVID. So they're, they're still thinking we're like days out of COVID. And so they were. They even said at the beginning of the retreat during introductions, they said, if anybody wants to talk, I really want to talk. So if anybody wants to talk, just come to, come to me and we'll talk. And I'm thinking, there's again somebody just breaking the whole point of this retreat. So why do we have silent retreats? And one person in the group, we talked about that. The, the, we, had, we have talks periodically, maybe three throughout the weekend. And usually people don't, but one person kept having that question. We do a Q&A and people write down their questions. And that person, even after we talked about it, their question always was, why is silence important? And we would look, read the question and think, but we just talked about that this morning before she wrote the question. And it came up again, and it came up again at the end. And I thought, we thought we had done a good job talking about the need for silence, but somehow the message was, well, obviously the message didn't sink in for most of us. So I thought, I thought, okay, we need to do, we need to, I need to dig even deeper because I'm so used to doing this retreat. I make an assumption that people are, uh, they, they, they're, they're reading. We also ask, which, what attracted you to this retreat? Was it the word retreat or the word silence? 
and we never got a clear answer from anybody, but we discovered it wasn't silence on this. <laughs> so I was trying to find a suit. There are a lot of suttas that talk about it, and the Buddha, of course, you think about our pra- what is our primary practice. It's silent meditation. And probably um, the meditations we do at the temple are maybe the most talking, if you're meditating at home, you're probably, you're probably just sitting in silence. And that silence, uh, we call noble silence. When we're, when we're silent, when we're really silent on the inside, when, we, when our minds have calmed down, that's really, when we talk about noble silence, it's, it's inside silence when we're at that point. And then we can even listen to people. Because I noticed with the talking that was going on at the retreat, usually it was like people who had this compulsion to speak, and so they weren't really listening to others. You know, you could tell in that talking dining room that people were not listening to each other. It was just like the, the, the need to just uh, kind of throw out the speech and... Maybe, maybe there's something that feels a little scary being silent too long. But that's what we only do, silence for one full day and a half a day, so it's not scary to people. So I wanted to find something that I had not read before about silence. And this is a, this is a long paper, and I'm not going to read it all, but I found this, I found this, of course, online, and what I realized... It's a talk, and what's amazing about it, it's a wonderful talk with very, uh, you know, it's with excellent points about Buddhism, but it was written, and it was a speech by a Catholic priest in 1986 to a group of Catholics. But he's, he's a great Buddhist teacher, and he makes a transition at the end of the talk about how how Christians, Catholics specifically, can relate to this. But he's using the teachings of the Buddha, and there are certainly all the religions, all spiritual paths have silence as an important element. There's contemplation, there's prayer, there's meditation in almost every uh, path. So silence is a, is a very important element. But uh, he made the transition in his talk going from this beautiful Buddhist discussion and different suttas, and it just flowed without you even realizing it that then he starts talking specifically specifically to his Catholic community. And uh, I won't get into that, but I thought it was just a wonderful, you know, you don't see that very often. So I wanted to just share with you a few of the parts from this that these were things that uh, that I really appreciated, and I'm going to have to integrate all this into what we do with this silent retreat because we've got to retrain ourselves, and maybe the pandemic had something to do with it. Uh, this is just a story, it, and this is not it's a it's not a, in the in the suttas. I don't think a philosopher once visited Buddha and asked him without words. Without the wordless, will you tell me the truth? Buddha kept silence. 
After a while, the philosopher rose up gently, made a solemn bow, and thanked Buddha, saying, With your loving kindness, I have cleared away all my delusions and entered the true path. When the philosopher had left, Ananda, a senior disciple that was the Buddha's, uh, with the Buddha all the time, a senior disciple of Buddha, inquired, O blessed one, what had this philosopher attained? The Buddha replied, A good horse runs even at the shadow of the whip. So the Buddha didn't have to say anything to this man. The Buddha's silence was was the answer. And I love that a good horse runs even... I've never heard this before. A good horse runs even at the shadow of the whip. They're so attuned. So I want to read what he says about this. And this is how he opens his talk. This little anecdote eloquently illustrates the manner and method by by which Gautama Buddha sought to experience and express the truth. Buddha's entire life could be briefly summed up as a relentless search, a revolutionary discovery, and a revealing experience of truth. Stories and anecdotes attributed to him in popular Buddhist legends, like the art, architecture, and sculpture that endeavors to capture and contain the radical mystique of the person of Buddha, often, if not always, present him as a serene, sober, and silent sage. His first disciples and followers also perceived these qualities of serenity, sobriety, and silence as indistinguishable traits of his enlightened personality. A brief exploration of our little anecdote will unfold to us the importance and the necessity of silence as an indispensable means towards an interior experience of the truth. Because as we will illustrate, silence at the interior and exterior levels is a, re- is a, re- is a requisite condition for both m- meditation and contemplation. In fact, despite the doctrinal differences that separate the various schools of Buddhism, a remarkable unity exists among them in recognizing the indispensability of silence as a powerful Cadillac, uh, as a powerful catalyst for meditation. So he talks a little bit about the birth of the Buddha. It's all very interesting. Um, he, he says that when the Buddha was born, it was a religious milieu which had in its tradition, and this is like five to 600 BC, where they're kind of sure. It might be a little bit even before that. Um, there were two distinct approaches to the pursuit and personal discoveries of the truth. So all these groups that were uh, like renunciates that were with different teachers, and they were going all over the country, which wasn't that big at that time, that northern part of India. And uh, they were going to the what, they, what we call parks, they call gardens, and uh, talking and debating and having all kinds of interesting uh, 
philosophical and spiritual teachings. And the Buddha became one of those teachers. But, but the first approach was that of sharpening one's intellect through active engagement in philosophical inquiries or debates for a lot of them. Debates were really big. Truth was sought through metaphysical debates and discussions. This approach placed strong emphasis on the power of rational knowledge. The second way was to enter into seclusion and solitude and to search for the truth in personal silence. Here the emphasis was placed on renunciation, detachment, and an ascetical way of life. Eschewing the first approach, Buddha deliberately and decisively chose the second. Ma, I, that, I tried to learn the sans, this is a Sanskrit word, but I, my pronunciation is not very good. Mauna, uh, rendered in English as silence, was a chief characteristic trait of this path. Mauna means blissful, blissful calmness, joyous recollection, tranquil quietude, and peaceful stillness which is really a good definition even for meditation, for samatha meditation, which is just, that's the state you want to get into, that uh, abiding quality. Uh, so it, think about the, later, and not in the suttas, uh, the Gautama Buddha is referred to as Sakyamuni, and you hear that a lot in uh, Mahayana practice, Sakyamuni Buddha. And literally, it means the silent one of the Sakya clan because uh, the Mauna Sanskrit becomes Muni in Pali. And so the Buddha was, I had never known that it meant the silent one of the Sakya clan. And the Sakya, Sakya was his family. So that was his clan, his his uh, little tribe. So if there's dual significance, for besides referring to Buddha's clan, in certain Indian languages, languages the word Sakya, Sakya, which is his clan name, also refers to something graceful or pleasing. Thus, Sakyamuni can also mean one who is gracefully silent. And I love that, thinking about that story even where the, where the other um, spiritual philosopher just sits with the Buddha in silence. And the Buddha knew that that was all that person wanted, but it was a graceful, peaceful silence. It was enough for him to basically become enlightened. Um, this is just a lovely paragraph. The Buddha began his search for the truth as a muni, walking on this graceful path of mauna, whereas the philosopher referred to in the above story symbolizes one who has chosen the first path, that of rational inquiries and metaphysical investigation, a philosopher paying a visit to Buddha to learn about the truth, was thus an exceptionally uncommon event. And because the path opted for by Buddha and the way chosen by the philosopher are two parallel lines that never meet. One can only jump from one to the other. It was indeed a rare event. 
The decision of the philosopher to swerve from his path is indicative of his tacit acknowledgement of the limitations and even failures of reason and logic. It points to the philosopher's gross disappointment with metaphysical discussions and debates. He had resolved to eschew both words, which were discourses and debates. You know, this is going on all the time. This is what these uh, mendicants wandering around, that's what they're always doing. And people would watch them have a debate, and, you know, they would, that would be one of the ways that they might, some of them were getting money. People would, you know, give them money for that. It points to the philosopher's a gross disappointment with metaphysical discussions and debates. He had resolved to give up both words and the wordless. The wordless means signs and gest- gestures, so nonverbal communication. And he requests Buddha to tell him of the truth without using other words or the wordless. Thus, in the penetrating eyes of Lord Buddha, the philosopher had become a receptacle, ideally prepared to receive the treasure of the truth. In his humble request, Buddha astutely recognized the sense of defeat and despair. A great mystic like Buddha could easily... Now, Catholicism considers Buddha a, a great mystic, like a, almost like a saint. So that's, that's a high term of, uh, once I was asked at, to uh, talk at a uh, workshop on mystics, and they asked me to speak about the Buddha. So I thought, well, okay, that's interesting. It's easy to do that because he has all the qualities of a mystic, but it was, it was a challenge to talk about how he's not a mystic to us. He's a teacher but he's not a god. You know, he's not even what we call a saint. But it was very interesting. So this is a Catholic uh, priest talking. A great mystic like Buddha could easily sense the interior preparedness of the philosopher who had unreservedly surrendered himself, himself with profound trust, docile humility, and audacious hope. The very decision of the philosopher to come to him asking for an experience of the truth was already a revolutionary step of personal conversion. Thus Buddha did not need any external force to teach him or lead him to the truth. Neither was there any need to prescribe techniques and exercises or lessons on meditation. For Buddha, the philosopher's sheer openness the sublime emptiness that could now be filled to the brim was enough. He therefore compares this philosopher to a good horse that is so watchfully alert and aware that it begins to run if it merely sees the shadow of the whip. The master has only to touch the whip and the horse nearly flies. Buddha has only to look into the eyes of the philosopher and all the teaching that can ever be imparted is readily received. For most of us, that's probably not how it works. But you know, as you, but you, you know, the more you practice, the more things 
I remember early on there were things uh, that didn't make sense to me. And, you know, a lot of teachers will say, you know, if something, if something doesn't make sense, you know, just be with it. And uh, over time, maybe you'll, maybe you'll read something or hear something or have an experience that opens that up for you. Uh, and that, you, that usually works. Like you, in the middle of sutta study, I would sometimes uh, suddenly get something that had, had been wiggling around in my mind for years, and it would suddenly make sense from what the teacher said. So... Uh, in Buddhism, there's a link between truth and silence. And what we call noble, he talks about noble, uh, noble silence. And here's, a, here's something about the Buddha silence. Buddha silence was not wordlessness or noiselessness. It had a transforming power, permeating and filling the atmosphere around him with such intensity that people seated in his presence experienced the ineffable and the inexplicable. His silence had no movement, yet people around him moved closer to the truth just by being in his presence, permeated and filled by the effluvia. I think there are a few typos in this. By the effluvia of his joyous stillness. His silence was contagious. It was like the unseen powers of a magnetic field or the invisible sound waves that travel in the atmosphere. That sounds a little bit like chanting sometimes. You know, if you sit and you just sit with the chanting, it feels like that. The close affinity that is said to enjoin truth with silence is not uncommon in the mystical traditions of other religions, including Christianity whether it be the Sufism of Islam or in Hasidism Has of Judaism, silence is always referred to as the prerequisite for an interior experience of the divine. Silence is often eulogized as the language of the heart. Buddha's silence reveals to us the nature and significance of an ideal form of silence. This become, becomes more evident when we contrast the Mauna with our ordinary experience. So uh, he's saying in this talk, there's an unquiet silence. Then I'll quit talking about silence. The silence which most of us have experienced or know of is an exterior absence of words or a stillness from noise. During such an experience, we may not use words audibly and externally, but the mind is unquiet, filled with words and noise, ideas, questions, desires, doubts, and conflicts. All this clouds and confuses the mind. Silence is only on the surface. Quietitude is only on the periphery. It is only a mirage or a deceptive appearance of silence because there is calamity inside and a pretense of calm outside. Such silence can easily be tilted by the least external noise. Instead of resulting in peace, 
this forced stillness will explode into annoyance and irritation. And then he talks about tranquil silence. So I, I think that the silence that was going on at, for a big part of my retreat this weekend was this unquiet silence. It had, it was, for some people, it, it was ready to explode. And it, because it was that, there wasn't, there wasn't that peace inside. And so uh, it was ready. It was just kind of bubbling, bubbling up and over. So uh, I think, I think, think about silence. Think about the si- when you sit in silence or when you're at home. Some people are, I mean, during COVID, I was at home alone the whole time and I loved it. <laughs> I've discovered things about myself. I love that silence, but it was harder for me to come out into the world when COVID was over. But um, there's a lot of that relationship we have to silence is really important because if we don't have that peaceful, tranquil silence, our meditation is going to be really difficult. Our meditation is always going to be about just reaching that reaching that uh, tranquil silence, and that might be that that's not bad at all. But that might be as far as we go with our meditation. It's just to get to the point where we're at peace, sitting in silence. But if we if we keep developing that quality of inner silence, even when we're out in the world, even when we're in noise, because we can't avoid. The world is really noisy, and uh, we, there's no way we can avoid that. And there are, aren't even people becoming uh, Catholic monks and nuns anymore, so they can't even, people aren't even choosing like a cloistered life very much. But that silence is a, is a, is a path to our meditation, to deeper meditation. And our, it's also... It's also that silent, calming that inner silence as, as we're purifying our mind, as we're living with, uh, we're living a virtuous life. There's less, there's less of our own yelling at ourselves and our heads. And as we develop, have noble friends and we're, we're cultivating and purifying our minds and our lives, that silence just becomes more and more comfortable because it's not, nobody yelling at you, why did you do that? Or why did you stay up all night and then have to go to work this morning? You know, we're, we're criticizing ourselves and we're yelling at ourselves. A lot of our internal noise is that. And uh, why can't you be better? Why can't you speak out more? Why don't you go, you know, you know all the stuff that can be going on with us internally. We don't know how to express it. So that's what we, that's our meditation is a beautiful practice to help us develop that internal silence. Because I know even at the retreats, after a meditation or after a session and, well, yoga, not, usually after there's been a meditation session, People are naturally at the retreat. They're, we should go to lunch right after we meditate. 
or to the meals because after that everybody's very calm and you know they that's probably the closest to inner silence that some of them were coming to so but other activities it doesn't allow that inner silence to it's not they're not cultivating that inner silence so just think about silence in your life and think about opportunities you have to develop that inner silence. Meditation is number one, uh, and find other activities, reading, and uh, just taking walks, which is a form of meditation if you're doing it without a lot of, a lot of internal thinking. So develop, develop that piece of inner silence, and I think it'll, it, it will be, there's no way that's wasted effort. So thank you.